Electronic Specifier. Hello there and welcome back to Electronic Specifier Insights and today I'm pleased to be joined by Brian Fox who is the CTO of Sonotype. So hi Brian, thanks very much for joining us and how are you today? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Okay, so start us off please with just a brief introduction of yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. My name is Brian Fox. I'm the co-founder and CTO here at Sonatype. Um, I have a long background at this point in software, starting all the way back in Perl, C, C++ days, and then moving on to Java. I was one of the early committers on the Apache Maven project. I wrote some of the uh, popular plugins for that back in the day and served as the chair of the Apache Maven management committee for, I don't know, uh, many years. <laughs> and I'm still still involved in the, in the Apache project. I'm also currently a governing board member for the Open SSF Foundation. Excellent. So lots of experience. So tell us a little bit more about Sonotype then. What is it you guys do? Sure. So Sonotype, we founded back in 2008, and we were initially focused on products and services around the Apache Maven ecosystem. And we created Nexus, the repository manager, which is, is very popular. We run the Maven Central repository for the community, which is where the world downloads their open source Java. So basically everybody in the world doing any Java development is somehow interacting with, with our systems. And then, of course, for the last probably 12, 13 years, we've been focused on what the world now calls SBOMs and, and uh, supply chain management of software, helping big organizations deal with uh, vulnerabilities and licensing defects. And so that's a, that's a short history of, of Sonotype at this point. Excellent. Thank you. And, and it leads us nicely onto the topic of, of conversation, which is it's overall about how enterprises in 2023 must become more disciplined about managing the open source software that they use in, in their supply chain. So to start us off then, tell us a little bit about open source software and what's driving the demand for the number of open source dependencies being downloaded and integrated into software. Yeah, I mean, you know, open source is so popular, especially with modern systems. You know, Maven was one of the first ones, but every language that came since has had a built-in package manager to make it easier to reuse dependencies. And, you know, prior to that, you had to figure out how to compile somebody else's source if you wanted to use it, or you were cutting and pasting snippets, and it was it was difficult. Now you can pick up whole building blocks, you know, it's the equivalent of manufacturing using parts, you know, the, the auto manufacturers drop an engine in the car, they don't assemble the engine in place in the car, and the engine itself is manufactured from parts coming from lots of other people. And so we simply just hit that point where software is now assembled more often than, you know, custom code. And for well over a decade, it's been true that the modern application is composed of about 90% open source components, right? So the software developers at an organization are typically writing about 10% of the code, binding it together, adding unique business logic and, and these types of things. But they're not usually uh, recreating database technology or UI components, right? They're fetching them from, from existing projects. And that's why it's been so popular. It allows developers to be much more productive um, and not have to recreate the wheel over and over and over again. Uh, so that's that's what's driving the, the explosion of, of open source components. Okay, so on the other side then, you know, what is it about about open source that makes it so vulnerable? I think the assertion that it's more vulnerable is not correct. I, I think if we were able to see the custom code 
you probably find that on average the quality is better. What what the challenge is is that the attackers are engineers like the rest of us and they're trying to figure out how to maximize their ROI. And so when you recognize that nearly every let's say Java application uh, depends upon a logging framework called Log4j, where are you going to spend your time, right? You're not going to spend your time more often than not trying to figure out how to crack that custom 10% in every bespoke application. You're going to figure out how can I leverage this, what engineers call a common mode failure. You know, when everybody's relying on the same thing, if that thing fails, everybody fails. And that, I think, is what is finally driving the attention of the attackers. They figured out that this constant concentration of risk in certain components provides their, the opportunity for them to do much more easily, uh, easily based attacks like, you know, spraying and praying across the internet. You know, the struts one that caught up Equifax was the same thing, that it didn't appear that Equifax itself was targeted. Department of Defense installations were being scanned at the exact same time that Equifax was initially for the struts vulnerability. So it looks more like a case of, I figure out how to exploit struts I spray it across the internet when I get a hit, then I go back and follow up. And so that really has been the mode of, of attacks now for five, six years. And and so th- that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is I think just organizations in general don't recognize how much open source actually is in their software. Leaders may have started their career like I did, writing everything from scratch and C and not recognize, or they, they have a mental model that open source means I'm using Linux and OpenOffice and Firefox, and that's not true. The reality is you can't develop in any modern language without using open source frameworks, or you simply wouldn't be productive, right? And so I think it's coupled, the attackers are focusing on the easy to exploit, broad impact type of components, and the leaders have not caught up to the way modern software development is happening. And also, one one last point, you know, when you buy software, there's a procurement office and legal gets involved and everybody has contacts and they know who to reach out to. Open source usually is picked up by the developers and there is no formal vetting in most organizations to understand whether this part is actually fit for what we want. It's usually left up to sort of random decisions by the developers, right? And that kind of feeds into the second point, the lack of awareness. So I think that's why we're seeing this massive explosion. All these things are happening at the same time now. So then how can an enterprise or an individual go about identifying an open source vulnerability and its level of risk? Well, I think it starts with organizations having a deep understanding of what components they're actually using. And as we've seen, talked about, written about the fact that Log4j a year after it was vulnerable and and like basically everybody in the world in tech and then a bunch that weren't in tech knew about this, 30% of the time, the vulnerable version was still being downloaded a year later, right? So the only logical conclusion for that is that those organizations had no understanding that they were in fact actually using Log4j, the vulnerable version, somewhere in their organization. And back in October, we, we released a report where we did some studies on the statistics around Central specifically, and we found that 96% of the time when somebody is consuming a vulnerable component, that component is already fixed, meaning there was a better choice available 96% of the time. And so those two stats really bring us back to this fact that most organizations still don't have that visibility of the components that I'm talking about. And, and if you don't have that visibility, 
you know, when the next log4j happens, you're running around asking everybody, are we using this component? Are we using a vulnerable version? Which applications, right? It, it's kind of chaos versus organizations that have chosen software supply chain management as a practice. It's, it's mostly a non-issue because the developers immediately are alerted that their application has something that needs to be fixed. So then what's the evidence for open source vulnerabilities being an actual problem? I mean, obviously, we've, you've, you've mentioned Log4J. I'm guessing that's probably the prime example. Yeah, I mean, all of the big ones that we've heard of lately, you know, SolarWinds, Log4J, Equifax, all of these trace back to open source uh, vulnerabilities. But again, statistically, if 90% of the software in an application is open source, you would assume at least 90% of the vulnerabilities more or less are going to come from those components. So it's not that they're open source is is the issue. But I, I think what's Log4J finally brought it to the forefront where everybody sort of had this collective freak out that, oh my gosh, we're all critically dependent upon these things that are done you know, uh, in spare time or as hobbies, which is not always the case. Many of these, especially bigger frameworks, companies hire developers to work on them and they contribute back. So it, it is their full-time job. So it's a misnomer to think that volunteer means amateur. That's usually completely the opposite. But that's why that's happening. I mean, following on from, from the point you just made there then, what would you say are the main lessons that we've learned from things like Log4J and, and Log4Shell as well? Yeah, well, I think people are starting to rally around the fact that there's a challenge here. You know, 10 years ago, I would have conversations with prospects and I would first have to convince them that they were, in fact, using open source, <laughs> which is ironic because usually they were downloading, you know, hundreds of thousands of components from our repository. We could show them and they were still in denial. That's no longer the case. You know, 10 years ago, I would talk to developers and they would say, well, we have a security team and a firewall for that. I don't really have to worry about the, the security of my components. I just can't use the AGPL, which is a, a viral license. And so those conversations, fortunately, are not happening anymore. But what I, I still see are people that are maybe over-focused on just trying to check the box. So, for example, here in, in the States, you know, last year, year before, we had the executive order mandating S-bombs for anything sold to the U.S. government. An S-bomb is a software bill of material. It's this thing I've been talking about, right? It's the understanding of what's inside your software. And that is due to take effect, uh, I think, at the end of this fiscal year in August. And the, the challenge is I've spoken to people who are just merely focused on the fact that I just have to produce this list of materials and ship it to someone. Like, literally, it could be posted on a website or printed on a paper. And they're, they're skipping over the fact that they actually need, need to do something with that information to make their software better. And the analogy that I, I've kind of used to, to great effect is imagine if we said, you know what, all our auto manufacturers, they don't need to be able to do a recall anymore. They just have to print the list of the parts in the glove box of every car they sell. Like, that's what the mandate for an S-bomb literally says. Print out the list of the parts and send it to us when you sell it. Which is kind of laughable if you think about that. Like, who's going to be able to deal with a list of parts in their car? That's crazy. And it's the same thing. And so, you know, I've been advocating in, in policy conversations to try to focus on, no, let's, let's figure out how to do the actual equivalent of a software recall. Because that implies that the organization obviously knows all the parts, then they're doing something with it. They're monitoring for vulnerabilities. They're making updated choices when quality things change. You know, just because the, the component was good last year 
probably means it's not good anymore. You know, fam famously software, you know, ages like milk, not like wine. You know, the older it is, the more likely it is to, to know, have known problems around it. And so, you know, the, the organizations need to have that, that process in place to do this. And then, of course, if you can do that, then it means you know those parts and you could produce that bill of materials for your downstream consumers, right? But I think we've focused on the end goal and not the right behavior. And fortunately, some of the, the legislation that's coming out both in the U.S. as well as in Europe with the, the CRA and, and some of the, the U.K. laws as well are starting to focus a bit more on the right, right parts of this. So I, I'm optimistic that we will get to the right place, uh, even if we're, we're dragged there kicking and screaming. So why is open source being targeted then? Is it just because, you know, there's so many people using it? Basically, yeah, it's it's an easy way for the attackers to amplify their effect. You know, it, if you figure out how to break a certain type of lock and then you just walk down the street and you look for that lock, it's a lot easier than going up to each house trying to figure out how to break each new lock you've never seen before. I mean, that's literally what's happening here. And, you know, we're seeing also a, a massive rise in intentionally malicious attacks on the supply chain as well. This is primarily happening in, in ecosystems like NPM and Python and Ruby for, for reasons that are kind of endemic to the way those uh, systems work, where they, they tend to prefer the latest version automatically. And so that is a ready-made target for develop for attackers. If everybody's going to update to the latest version, as soon as you put it out there, you have an instant audience. And because so many organizations have basically no practices, it's easy to trick the developers. You know, if you if there's a component that has an underscore in the name, I can go publish a, a component with the same name with a dash in it and then, and then fake the download and, and these types of things through scripts. So as a developer, it can be very difficult to tell the legitimate component from the fake one. And we're seeing... You know, Sonatype has developed technology to detect these using MLAI techniques. We've seen over 105,000 of these in the last year. And what's, it's almost comically sad that the level of sophistication on many of these attacks is super low. Like the component doesn't even try to pretend to be the legitimate component. It, it literally is a vessel for delivering a payload like a backdoor exfiltrating data. It's never going to compile. It's never going to run. So they're not even trying to hide their tracks. And I point that that is evidence that we're doing such a terrible job as an industry. If we're making it that easy that they don't even have to try, that they can kind of phone in the attack. Well, what does that say about our level of sophistication of the defense? It's terrible, right? Because these things are always a cat and mouse game. So I think we will see those attacks get necessarily more sophisticated only when we do a better job of defending against the obvious ones. That's the situation we're in right now. So is there anyone or, you know, any, any organization in particular to, to blame for these vulnerabilities that hackers are, are you know, are utilizing? No, I mean, software is written by humans. Humans make mistakes. And so... You know, open source software has probably on average less number of actual vulnerabilities than custom software. It's just there's a light being shined on it now. Finally, you know, like I said, when I first started talking to people, they were in denial that it was a problem, you know. And, and so I think many open source projects are actually better than their commercial equivalents. It's just you can't see what's inside that commercial equivalent. They're hidden by that, that veil of, you know, closed source. And 
Unfortunately, that also works in the attacker's favor sometimes too, that they have the, the ability to actually inspect the code and figure out what's going on and exploit it. They don't just merely have to poke and probe from the outside. Right. But what we've seen, you know, even six, seven years ago was, you know, some good researcher would find a vulnerability. They would go through a responsible zero day disclosure, send it to the project. The project would fix it. You know, the log for J1 was fixed over Thanksgiving. Most of the developers were here in the U.S. They turned that around in days. Yet the problem, as again, evidenced by our statistics, a year on 30 percent of the downloads are still the vulnerable version. The attackers just have to beat people updating to the latest version. They don't have to beat the maintainers fixing it, right? And again, that 96% stat is, is shocking in this case. 96% of the time when somebody consumed a vulnerable component, it had a fix available. It's absolutely, you know, 4% of the time was it the case that there was a known vulnerability and it wasn't already fixed. That, you know, so there's a lot of focus and, and a lot of knee-jerk reaction in the wake of Log4J that says we need to do a better job educating developers. We need to provide better tools to maintainers. We need to scan the code. We need to do all these things. And those are all true. Yet that's solving 4% of the problem. If we could get organizations to manage their components like we expect all of our physical goods manufacturers to do, we would start solving 96% of the problem. And we can do that today. You know, these other these other things that are being talked about, they'll take a decade to pay off. I mean, how long will it take before the majority of software developers have had elevated security training worldwide? Like, it's crazy to think about. Doesn't mean we shouldn't start, but it's going to take a long time, right? Yeah, definitely. So so let's look to the future then and talk about some predictions for, for this year and, and going forward. How do you see the software supply chain evolving and what added threats do you think we'll need to be protecting against? Well, I think there's two things. I think in terms, I'm going to take them in reverse order. In terms of new threats, I am worried that when we are finally successful in defeating those those simple attacks I was talking about before and make it harder to to provide these obviously malicious components who have no other purpose than to be malicious. When we solve that problem, what will the attackers do? The attackers will move into popular projects and try to put uh, intentionally, you know, malicious or vulnerable pieces of code into real projects and hide in the middle. Those types of things are going to be much more difficult to detect. And we've already started working on those types of things, expanding our MLAI, because I, I expect that's where the war will go. I don't know if that's going to happen in a year or five, but it's going to happen. It, it's just the, the inevitable conclusion of the cat and mouse game we're in. So that's where I think that that will happen over some period of time. In the meantime, clearly governments around the world are waking up to this problem. You know, our critical infrastructure is at risk. You see things like the states, uh, the colonial a gas pipeline being shut down due to ransomware and these types of things. So, you know, all of our critical infrastructure, some level is, is dependent upon open source. And so you, you should assume it's the same problem everywhere. There's nothing special about any of those pieces of software that makes it different. And, and so governments are taking action. I think it's going to accelerate our adoption of these practices. It, it already has in the, in the, the conversations around SBOM, even though, as I pointed out, it's not the ideal thing, it's certainly moved the needle and people are actually starting to focus on it. And so I think there's going to be conversations around rethinking how we allow companies to disclaim liability and, and maybe 
making them liable for not making good choices. And, you know, we've seen this in other industries where in the early days of food safety laws that unless you were buying something directly from the manufacturer and had a contractual relationship, you couldn't sue. So if you were just a consumer of a beverage at a bar that was tainted, you couldn't sue anybody until they realized like, you know what? We now know that allowing vermin into bottles is not safe. And so if you're a manufacturer and you're doing that, you're negligent of not taking due care. I think that as our industry gets smarter around these problems and the best practices become more accepted, if you're not following those best practices, you're going to be an outlier. And and I suspect that laws will change to make you uh, potentially liable for the, the cause that comes from that. So that's how I think this is going to unfold over the next couple of years. Yeah, you definitely summed it up nicely just by saying, you know, it's it's a cat and mouse game. So it certainly is. And before we wrap up the conversation, then, is there anything else that, that you'd like to discuss? Anything that you feel that we've missed? Just uh, again, I, I think you need to be focused on making sure you understand deeply all the components in your software across your entire portfolio. First problem that helps you deal with things like Log4j when they will happen next. Um, and then recognize that there is this rise of malicious attacks that are intentionally trying to exploit your developers and your development infrastructure. And uh, many organizations, even if they're dealing with the S-bombs and these types of things, they're not thinking about defending their developers. And we're seeing a rise of easy attacks that are exfiltrating data and compromising development systems. And that requires a, a whole different approach. You know, so we, we like to talk a lot uh, in DevOps and DevSecOps worlds about Deming and the principles that he used to help rebuild the Japan auto industry. You know, make sure you know which parts are, are in each thing, you know, choose better parts from better suppliers and all these types of things. You should do that. But you also should recognize that merely doing that isn't going to stop somebody intent on blowing up your factory. That requires a different level of, of defense, and you need to make sure that you're focused on that part as well, right? So I would, I would just leave the audience with that. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, Brian, and for your insights as well. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you for having me. Electronic Specifier.